and turn back to that 11th chapter of John where we had our scripture reading a few moments ago. We want to just look at one of those verses that I'll reread for you and we'll have a word of prayer and we'll look into the message that God has given for today. It's good to see you. Uh, <laughs> we have had some challenging weather of late, have we not? I rolled into the parking lot here Wednesday night. Not too many of you did. But uh, my car temperature gauge said minus 5. And then we took off out of here and got to one place along 220 going back that way and hit minus 11. And I thought, well, it's understandable perhaps why with the wind chill warnings and everything else, they closed uh, so many school cancellations and closing. I think well, there were 125 or so when we left home, and then there were another 25 or 50 we looked saw going home. And so it just was a little challenging, wasn't it? So I think we can extend forgiveness to you if, you, <laughs> if you didn't make it on Wednesday night. But if you didn't make it on Wednesday night, you didn't hear the last of Gideon. And uh, so we'll have to do something different this coming Wednesday night because uh, those five messages that we had on Gideon are complete at this point. I will tease you with this. We're going to continue looking at judges. We're going to look at another judge and spend four weeks, God willing, looking at some things from his particular life. So we'll see how we fare with that. In any respect, have a look at verse number 26 once again, and especially note the last phrase in the verse. See, we are very accustomed since John 11, 25 and 26. It just happens to be the seventh of Jesus, or it has to be, happens to be one of the very well-known of the seven uh, I am sayings of Jesus. So we're in the habit of quoting this, but normally speaking, we tend not to uh, quote the last part, which is really what I'm interested in today. Verse number 26, if you look there, and it says, This question Jesus asked of Martha, Believest thou this? Or if we put that sort of in the way we speak today, Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And I want us to ponder that question today. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your loving kindness. Thank you that you have allowed us another day of mercy and grace, given us another day of life. And thank you that you have put it in our hearts to be in the house of God today. Thank you that the weather is not quite such a challenge to us, not quite so, so foreboding, a little easier to be here today. And I pray that in your mercy and goodwill that you'll continue to bear with us and watch over us through these days of, of uh, winter as it continues on, whatever it brings. We know that you're with us in all things. And Father, we're grateful that we can have faith in your decisions about uh, the weather and all of our affairs. I pray now, Lord, that you will be with us in the next little while as we spend some time in God's word together. Pray that you give me the ability, Lord, to communicate the message that you've given to me uh, today uh, clearly, effectively, uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, with practicality, and with benefit and blessing according to your working in our hearts. And we'll thank you now for these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, you sort of already ciphered out that the sermon title for this morning is that question, Do You Believe this. And with this message, I would like to bring to a conclusion a series that I've been working on for some 30 messages now, and you just haven't heard them all. But this actually makes the 30th message in last message that I want to use to conclude this series that I have called The Penetrating Questions of Jesus. I hope that maybe, if nothing else, the messages you've heard will cause you to be a little more alert as you read the Gospels and you find these questions that Jesus asked. All the time, Jesus asked questions. He asked them of his followers, asked them of the disciples. He asked them of common, ordinary, everyday people that he encountered. He asked them of his adversaries, always, though, to good use, always to provoke thought, always to make an important point. 
Hence, the penetrating questions of Jesus, because they are thought-provoking, they are penetrating, they are powerful. And this particular question today is certainly in line with that. It's really an appropriate way to end. The messages that you've heard me bring from this particular series have pretty much come from John's Gospel. So I would call your attention to the greater context of the book of John, and I think it might be nice. Uh, most of the verses that I'll ask you to look at are within the Gospel of John, so it's pretty easy to do this without having to roam too far from the text that we are, we are with. But if you turn over to the book of John chapter 20, let's uh, just do a little something here to set the stage for this message and why it's out of order with the other messages that I brought in John. So why? I think it's an appropriate one to end, particularly in the greater context of John's Gospel, because John, as did the other evangelists, had a distinct purpose for which he wrote. And he tells us this. We don't have to, to guess it. He tells us exactly what it is that he's doing. And we find that in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20 when he says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, and there are seven of them, unless we count the one where the miracle of the fishes at the end would be eight, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And this is important. Dwell on this for a moment because it tells you two things. He makes two important statements here. First of all, his purpose in writing this book is evangelistic in nature. And may the church always realize the burden and responsibility to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Telling men and women and boys and girls how to be saved, how to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, how to know that your sins are forgiven, how to know that you have a home in heaven is really the most important message we preach. And from there on, the church goes on to edify the saints. All of this is a part of making disciples, which is the Great Commission. Telling people the gospel so that they might be saved and then nourishing them in the words of sound doctrine, seeing them grow in faith. That is all a part of discipleship, which really is the greater concept that's in the Great Commission. John's purpose is evangelistic in nature, and the church always has to remember that that's primary to what we do. Our purpose is evangelistic in nature, because we're interested in making disciples of all men. But John also then begins to tell us a little bit about he formulated. Of course, we understand you have the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit here. These are not just things that John sort of conjured up. He wasn't like a novelist, a fiction writer, sitting down and thinking about, okay, these are the characters in the book. These, this is the plot line I'm going to develop and, and have that all sort of laid out in advance. It's not that John disengages mentally. It's the point I'm making now is that the Holy Spirit led John in the construction of this book because what John is saying to us in the second place is, you know, I didn't have any lack of material. In fact, he says in that verse that we read before, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. Now, if you think about it, John was with the Lord as one of the disciples. In fact, he was really one of the inner circle of disciples, but with the Lord those years of his ministry on the earth, how many miracles do you think he saw Jesus do? So these miracles that Christ did, those of them particularly that, that would be characterized as sign miracles, John said, I don't lack for knowing a whole host of things that Jesus did that I'm not including in this book. I'm including seven. And the reason that I am is because the Spirit of God has invested them with specific purpose. 
to demonstrate to men and women and boys and girls, people who hear their message, that Jesus truly is the Christ. He truly is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the purpose of that, having that faith in men and women and boys and girls, is because that is the gateway to life. And that believing that, they might have life through his name. You didn't hear this message, but when I, some weeks ago, began this series, I began it actually with one that was sort of an attention getter, but it's kind of interesting because it uh, sort of brings full circle to all of this. I started with Mark 8.36. I dropped back then and went back to Matthew and caught questions there. We went through Mark and caught questions there, went through Luke and caught questions there. And by the time I was able to be here and be speaking to you folks, we primarily were looking at John. But think about Mark 8.36 for a moment, because it's like all of this dovetails. It's like not only is this particular one appropriate to end with insofar as the context of John's gospel, it's really kind of appropriate to end with insofar as the whole series. Because Mark 8.36 brings us back to the question of discipleship. And Jesus asks in that verse, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Hmm. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world? In other words, you can be the greatest success that this world could tell about. But to go through all of life in spite of all of that success in this world and not have eternal life, to lose your own soul, there is no profit in that, beloved, because here we tarry for a short space, but man has an eternal soul. We will spend somewhere for eternity. And Jesus brings that point out. Now, we don't have time this morning, but if you go back and you read the context out of which that Mark 8.36 comes, it's really the context of discipleship. And so I've made the point, discipleship begins when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and it continues as we grow and mature in that faith. So these questions of Jesus, they bring us all the way around, time and time again, to confronting this issue of whether or not we are saved, whether or not we have life through his name, and whether or not we are truly his disciple. So there is a very famous question that Jesus asks of Martha, and it's the one that we're looking at here in chapter number 11 and verse number 27. Do you believe this? Jesus made a great statement to her concerning eternal life. I am the resur resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that's what we're going to look at a little bit today. Jesus asks this particular question in a context in which many people are open to listening to it. You know what that context was? I'll give you a hint. The word starts with D. What happened to Lazarus? He died. And death is a fact of life. I guess maybe I've thought about this just a little bit more this weekend. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like you ever go too far before you hear about someone has passed away that you know. Hardly more than a week ago, we had a phone call from someone who told us that a missionary we've known and known, known for years and years and supported for years and years back at the church in Huntington, he had passed away. And then on the 31st, I think maybe the next morning, our daughter sent us the post. Uh, Bob Jones III had posted that his wife, Beneth, was not expected to live. And she did, in fact, succumb yesterday morning to cancer and is with the Lord today. 
And so often we're confronted with death. You know, I have found, it's very interesting, I have found in the course of ministry that people are very open to the subject of Jesus and eternal life at funerals. I think it's probably true to say that of all of the funerals that I've done, and I can't really tell you how many, I've lost track. I, 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 you know, it's kind of like Paul and trying to remember who he had baptized. It just, I have so many folders of funerals. Um, I, I never realized when I started the ministry, really, that it would be that way. I, I remember how good God, good, good God is in his providence that when we were coming to Huntington, I told my wife, I said, you know, I don't have a black suit. I better be sure and get a black suit. And we made the arrangements to get one before we ever came. And within two weeks, I had a funeral. And I can remember the day when the John B. Brown funeral home in Huntington, I had two funerals there in one day. I had one at 10 o'clock in the morning. And when I got done with that, they said, well, we'll see you this afternoon. I had another one at, I think it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Funeral after funeral after funeral. And I have to tell you, I've seen more people come to Jesus Christ through funeral services than I've seen in any other single venue. And I think it's true to say that I don't have never conducted a funeral, whether I had the opportunity to give a message in a funeral home, an even greater opportunity to preach in a church context, or we were simply in the cemetery with a graveside service that I didn't give an invitation. Once in a while, I'd have somebody criticize me for that. It was like water running off a duck's back. I've never really tried to be difficult with people. I've certain, my manner has never been confrontational in the extreme. But God called me to preach the gospel, and I can't really think of a better occasion to preach the gospel. And why preach the gospel if you don't invite men and women and boys and girls whose heart is being touched by the gospel to put their faith and trust in him. That's what this is all about. So this is an important question. In this statement of purpose, John tells us the importance of this question. It's truly a life and death matter. He says that if we don't believe, he said these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Well, think about the logic of that. If you haven't believed, you don't have life. Right? This is evangelistic in nature, and the whole message of the gospel is that we need a Savior. We need eternal life. And why do we need eternal life? It's because we are unsaved. We do not have a relationship with God. The Apostle Paul tells us we are not living spiritually, just as God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Man did not die that day physically, but he did die that day spiritually. And the Apostle Paul tells us that Naturally born, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We may have physical life, but we do not have the life of God. We do not have spiritual life. We do not have eternal life, except we come to faith in Jesus Christ and are born again. This is a life and death question. It is of critical importance. Upon this issue, faith in Christ hinges eternal life, and we see it here in this well-known I am saying of Jesus. Just look at verse 25 again and 26. He's talking about life, and he's talking about life in all of its aspects. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. What was he trying to tell Martha? She said, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection at the last day. What was she saying? Well, she's saying, I've been to Sunday school, Lord. I know the catechism. I know what a good Jew is supposed to believe. I know about the resurrection. I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus wanted her to know something more. The resurrection is not just a fact. It is a fact. But the resurrection is a whole lot more than a fact. The resurrection is inseparably tied to a person. 
And if you do not know that person, you may rise, but you will rise to condemnation. You will not rise to eternal life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Then he goes on to develop those two concepts. What's resurrection deal with? Well, it deals with physical death and a restoration of physical life. Now, I understand that we'll have a glorified body one day, but resurrection is the part you talk about in the cemetery, right? Because that's what people are concerned about. But Jesus goes on to say this, I am the resurrection and the life, and then he develops what he means by those things in those phrases that follow. He that believeth in me, though he were dead. What's that mean? He that believeth in me, even if he dies. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you believe that? Boy, I'm really glad I believe that. Because apart from Jesus Christ coming before the time of my death, it, it's going to happen. It's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Then he talks about something else. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he goes on to give the explanation of that latter thought, life. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. You live, but you don't come with that kind of life. You get that kind of life through believing in Jesus Christ. And beloved, did you realize as you sit here this morning, if you honestly and truly know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have eternal life. You already have the life of God within you, and nothing will ever change that, not even physical death. In a spiritual sense, you will never die, even if you have to meet physical death. I would love to skip on the first. Really, I would. It just, I don't think anybody looks forward to that. It, I, I think that's just speaking naturally. I'm not afraid of it. I don't say I'm standing in line either. John realizes that this question is so important, and you could check this if you want, but you will find that the word for believe is used 98 times in the Gospel of John, 98 times. Now here's something that's really interesting about this. Not only does it occur 98 times, but you will never find it in the noun form. Pistis in Greek is faith. Pistuo in Greek is to believe. You never find pistis. Oh, it's all in the all in the New Testament. It's all in the epistles. Paul talks about faith all the time, as do other writers in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. But there's something interesting to realize from this, and that is the thought that if it's always used as a verb in John's Gospel, it must be that God wants us to understand that there is some action involved in believing. Believing is not just sitting there and absorbing some intellectual concept. There's more to it, and we're going to develop that a little bit more. The urgency of believing is evangelistic in nature because if you've never believed, you haven't been saved. And so there is an urgency to bidding men and women and boys and girls to put their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Throughout the gospel, we see this reinforced both positively and negatively. For instance, turn back to chapter 1 for a moment, and here's where we'll look at a few verses in John's gospel. John chapter 1 and verse 11, 12, and 13. Believing in Jesus Christ is the key to the new birth. And Jesus told Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the what? Kingdom of God. So in verses 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And how does that happen? What's the next phrase say? Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
Believing is the key to eternal life and being saved. Everyone knows these verses, but have we really thought about what they're saying? John chapter 3, verse number 16, tells us that God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him, there it is, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If we look at it from the negative perspective, it's the only way to avoid perishing. That's what that verse says, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. It's the only way to avoid condemnation. If we look in the next verse, what does he say? He tells us, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Over in John chapter 8 and verse 24, if we move forward just a little bit more, we find another interesting way of phrasing it. Jesus is having a conversation with some of his opponents, adversaries in this particular case. And look what he says to them in verse number 24. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins, and there is nothing worse that can happen to you. There's absolutely nothing worse that can happen to you than to die in your sins. But in order to avoid that, the gateway to life is faith. We have to believe in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. It shows up a number of times in John's Gospel in questions. We're talking about penetrating questions of Jesus. I selected John 8, or I'm sorry, John 11 and verse 27 to use, but I want to show you how Jesus asked this question multiple times in John's Gospel. First of all, look at back at John chapter uh, 3 and verse number 12. Jesus is having a conversation with a ruler of the Jews. His name was Nicodemus. In verse number 12 of chapter 3, look at the question that he asks of Nicodemus. He says, If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Hmm. There's another question about belief and pointing to Nicodemus, you know, you have to believe. Chapter 5 and verse 44 is an example where, again, Jesus is having a bit of a conversation with some who were not favorable to him. And in John chapter 5 and verse 44, you'll find another time Jesus asks that question. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? You'll find another one in John 8, 46. Again, Jesus is speaking to those who are antagonistic towards him, and he says in John 8 and verse 46, Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not then believe? So all the time we find these questions, and I have several more, you see it reflecting a burden on the part of Jesus Christ. He's either burdened to see people saved and they need to believe in him in order to be saved or he's speaking to believers in whom he seeks to cultivate a greater, stronger faith. Let's look at the next example then and see how this bears out. In John chapter 9 verse 35, there's a man that Jesus took the trouble to heal. He was the man who was born blind, but Jesus always had a purpose in this and it was evangelistic in nature. And this is one of those signs that we find in the Gospel of John. And Jesus goes back to him, verse 35, and he says, Jesus heard that they cast him out. Do you know what that, that's excommunication. That's what that is. 
They cast him out of the synagogue because they did not believe that he was willing to reject Christ in the way that they wanted him to. They cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Do you see the burden and urgency of Jesus to see this man saved in whose life he had performed this work? Martha, of course, Martha is a believer, but her faith needs to be strengthened, and we'll see in a little bit of, of time here towards the end how, in fact, that faith was strengthened. But she says to Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Well, Jesus didn't need to be there for her brother not to die. Right? I mean, Jesus could have spoken the word. He could have simply thought the act, and Lazarus would have been healed. So Martha is a believer. In fact, Martha is a part of a family that was very special to Jesus because we read in the Bible, now Jesus loved Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. Jesus had a very close relationship with these people. Not that Jesus doesn't love everyone. This is speaking from a human perspective. He was close to these people. He had spent time with these people. And he wanted to cultivate a deeper, greater faith in himself within Martha. Look in chapter 14 uh, at Philip. John chapter 14. Philip also was a believer. Philip was a disciple. But Jesus speaks to him. Believest thou not, verse 10, that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works? Philip made that statement, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. I always chuckle every time I read that. I talk about being bold. Hey, we'll be just fine. Show us the Father. We'll believe everything. Just show us the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Believest thou not that I am in the Father? See, seeking to grow Philip's faith with that question. And one more, John chapter 16, verse 31. Again, it's to the disciples, but notice here. They say to him, and I, this one's good too. It, it's just sort of nice to see these things that, that so reflect how we often talk and how we often are. They say, now we are sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee, verse 30, by this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus answered them, How long suffering is thee anyway? Do you now believe? Jesus' burden, either to see people trust him for salvation and be saved, or else to grow them in their faith. And it's kind of interesting if you were to go back and look at all of these questions and these times um, that you find the Lord dealing with this, you'll find that most of the time they tend to follow one of those seven sign miracles, which all tie into this John 20, verses 30 and 31. So I say to you, beloved, when we talk about faith this morning, if you say, why do you talk about that so much? It's life and death. It's life and death. It's critical. There's nothing more important, because if you never have believed, then you don't have eternal life. Somebody might go further and say, well, why do you folks talk so much? You know, in, in church, it seems like I go and you make such a big issue out of faith. Why, why is faith important? Well, you know, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on that today, but I can answer that question for you. If you look around this room, you'll see a lot of switches. So, like right there is a, presumably a light switch, correct? See it there? 
Oh, here's another switch, presumably a light switch. Back at the back of the building, lots of switches. Over there, there's some electronic equipment. They have switches on them. What good's a switch without electricity? <laughs> some of you are laughing. I know why. <laughs> Did you ever notice um, sometimes the power goes out and you run around the house turning on light switches? It's just so, such a force of habit. And why I bring this up is because the power to run this equipment to do whatever it is that we need done is in the electricity. And the electricity is in these wires, but, you know, just sitting here, electricity and wires doesn't do you much good. You can't even see it. You can feel it if you're so foolish as to grab a, a bare wire, but you can't even see it. But if you turn on a switch that governs the circuit that lets that energy flow to an appliance of some kind, the appliance functions. Faith is like that. Faith isn't the power. Grace is the power. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, is the power. Those things cleanse us from sin. It's faith that's the switch that allows the power of God's cleansing grace to come to us and wash our sins away. And again, I don't have time for this, but it, I just dropped this out for anybody who might be interested. There is a very important reason why God brings salvation to us exclusively by faith. What does it say? For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because God doesn't operate on a works basis insofar as salvation is concerned. He operates on a grace basis. And Paul tells us this in the book of Romans when he's going through this whole thing of justification by faith. In chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. Because God only operates by grace with sinners to save them. What am I saying? I'm saying you can't work your way to heaven. I'm saying there is no work you can do to get yourself to heaven. If there were a work that you could do to get yourself to heaven, the, the mission of Jesus Christ by coming into this world and his death on the cross is vain. It would simply be a matter. We would simply reduce it. God would simply reduce it to a list of rules. Do this and don't do this and you're in. Do this or don't do that and you're not in. So God can only save people by faith because faith is no work of ours. In fact, if you think deeply about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that's what it's telling us. It's telling us it's all God's gift. See, faith isn't a work you do. Faith is not something you conjure up. Faith is something that's wrought in your heart. For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is it? The whole kit and caboodle. The simplest way to understand that is just to understand that you and I wouldn't be here today, our faith wouldn't be in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior if God hadn't sought us out and made the first move. It's all of God's grace, and that's why God operates with us by faith, because it magnifies his grace and allows him to deal with us according to his grace. Now, if so much rides on this, and we spent most of the time, we won't have time for the other points as much, but if so much rides, that was the importance, if, if so much rides on faith, believing in Jesus Christ, then it would stand to reason it's probably good that we know what that means, that we don't just talk about it and assume that we know what it means. 
Is there some way we can come to a, 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 an understanding of this? Because see, there are all kinds of misconceptions. First of all, there are some people who think, well, I'm okay because I, I believe in Jesus Christ. Someone comes, knocks on my door, I say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Well, of course I do. Used to be a day when, when I was a, a kid, and I remember this so distinctly because I think back now after all these years and see how God was working in my life to bring me to the place where I was really saved. But see, I was raised in a nominal Christian home. I was raised in a denominational church. So if you had come to me kind of like many years after I got all this fixed up and went to other doors and asked people the same question, if you'd come to my door and said, uh, are you a Christian? I was, well, of course I'm a Christian. I, I was born in America, right? I mean, it was just this concept that as long as you accepted facts, and in that church, uh, we learned enough to know that what John 3.16 was. We learned enough to know the facts of the Christian religion. And I certain was, certainly was not a rejecter of those facts, so I thought I was okay. That's what's called intellectual assent. That's what's called missing heaven by 18 inches. Because if it's only here and not here, you don't have it. This is just the place the mind stores information, right? Our brains. When it works its way down here so that it affects our emotions and our will, such that we are now ready to take that action of believing in Jesus Christ because we see a need that we have and believe on him as the one who can meet that need, now you're getting somewhere. That's the difference between up here and here. Missing heaven by 18 inches. We've also been through the days and you remember some discussion of this about what was called easy believism. How many have heard that term before? Sure, lots of you have. You know what's really interesting, and I thought you might like to hear this. It's just sort of interesting sometimes how things come around. But, you know, back in the day when the heyday with Billy Graham and his evangelistic crusades, he, it's fair to say he took criticism from a lot of people along this very line, this easy believism idea, because there were those who criticized and basically felt, well, you know, these people, they come in here a message, these masses of people, and they don't necessarily understand everything they're hearing, and they're, they're basically uh, called upon to walk down an aisle and trust Christ and be saved. And sometimes those people might get down there, and I think in most contexts they would try to have workers to, to meet with people, but even in many independent Baptist circles, we certainly, and it's, some of it's still with us, came, came through a period of time where pray this prayer and you're saved. So Billy Graham took some criticism for that. Maybe some of it was justified. But it's very interesting what Billy Graham had to say when he was 95. In 2013, Billy Graham published a book. It was called Reason for My Hope, colon, Salvation. Listen to what he had to say. There is a mindset today that if people believe in God and do good works, they are going to heaven. But there are many questions that must be answered. There are two basic needs that all people have, the need for hope and the need for salvation. It should not be surprising if people believe easily in a God who makes no demands, but this is not the God of the Bible. Satan has cleverly misled people by whispering that they can believe in Jesus Christ without being changed, but this is the devil's lie. Isn't that interesting? It's really interesting to see him clarify all of that and make that very plain to people that this, this plague of easy belief, we've been through all of this. It's very important, and so there's an illustration in John's Gospel. Turn back to chapter 2. See, I promised you I'd pretty much keep you here, because we have one ready-made right here to understand this concept. What's it mean? 
It's a verb of action. It's something that when the Holy Spirit works in our heart, we respond to. So this is quite interesting. You come to the end of chapter 2, and it says this in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name. This sounds good, right? Many believed in his name. When they saw the miracles which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any man should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, what's interesting is, look at verse number 23. Many believed in his name. Look at verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them. Same verb. Just translated differently in verse 24. Same pistuo. But what does it mean? It means Jesus didn't commit himself to those people. If we wanted to bring this out literally, to bring out the concept of the, the fact that this is the verb to believe, many believed in him, but Jesus didn't believe in them. He didn't go so far as to commit himself to them because he knew what was in man. He knew that much of this was surface. He knew that much of this was not genuine. He knew that much of this was just surface acceptance of facts and not a genuine heart change that comes when a person truly repents of his sins and puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. So Jesus didn't commit to these people. See, it's an act that happens when the Spirit of God works in our hearts. We become so burdened about our sin. We become so cognizant of our lost estate. We, we, the Holy Spirit has brought us through that period of conviction. We see ourselves as lost and needing to be saved. And what is it that brings us to that point of action? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. But that action that results is our putting our faith in Jesus Christ, and that's an act. That's not just something going on up here. It's something going on here. It's a commitment, and which is why, beloved, and this will, I think, be interesting to you. I won't ask you to turn because we're sort of pressed here a little bit on finishing this up. But verses that you use all the time when you seek to witness to people and try to lead them to Christ, and maybe you haven't realized this is exactly what's going on in those verses. Romans 10, 9, and 10. All right, think about this for a minute. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Action? Confess with thy mouth and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. What? Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Do you see how once the belief, the order is reversed in the first verse over the second verse, but what happens the real logical order of this, the belief is created in the heart which results in the act of confessing him as our personal savior, of asking him to save us from our sins, which is why this whole process of his discussion of how to be saved in Romans 10, 9, and 10 comes to a conclusion with Romans 10, 13 where it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why? Because a prayer saves you? Calling on the Lord saves you? No. It's the culmination of that work of faith wrought in the heart that, that puts us to that point of decision, if you would call it that, where we are ready to commit to Jesus Christ. 
You may understand not a lot about it. Some people understand a whole lot about it when they're saved. Some people don't understand very much. But I want to tell you one of my favorite stories to illustrate this. You can use this story to illustrate a number of things, but Jesus didn't commit, it says in verse number 24 of John chapter 2. I don't know how many people here would be familiar with the famous opera singer Luciano Pavarotti. But I learned this story years and years ago and have treasured it ever since I first learned it. Now, Pavarotti, Italian, so one presumably would gather that he was brought up in Roman Catholicism. I really don't know anything about his spiritual state. It's the truth he speaks in this story, though, that really came from his father that interests me. Of course, Pavarotti is world famous, still is. He died in 2007. Arguably the most, um, the best, arguably the best um, modern-day tenor singer in the world of opera, known as the King of the High Sea. How did he come to be, how did it, how did it come about that Pavarotti became a singer? And that's what's really interesting in this. He tells the story. We'll let him tell us. He said, when I was a boy, my father was a baker. Introduced me to the wonders of song. See, his dad was an amateur singer, had a decent voice, and was very interested in his son learning about the wonders of singing. And so he urged me, he said of his dad, to develop my voice. Well, there was a man in his hometown where he was born, Medina, Italy, um, by the name of Arrigo Pola. And he was a voice, gave voice lessons. And so Pavarotti went to him and then he began to cultivate his voice, began to cultivate singing. Um, years later, uh, he actually had some interest in farming as well, but years later he enrolled in a teacher's college. And so after you have this, this run up to this background, here's someone his father has encouraged to develop his voice. He's had professional lessons. He knows he has a voice. He knows there's skill there, but he has an interest also in teaching, having gone to a teacher's college. And so when he graduated, he said to his father, shall I be a teacher or a singer? Now looking back on it from the perspective of all these years later, I'm sure he would have made a fine teacher. But I'm not sure in modern day times the world has truly seen his equal as a tenor. A lot hinged on this decision. His dad gave him some very sage advice. He said, Luciano, if you try to sit on two chairs, you will fall between them. For life, you must choose one chair. Pavarotti said, I chose one. It took seven years of study and frustration before his first professional appearance. It took another seven years of hard work before his first appearance at the Metropolitan Opera. And now Pavarotti telling the story says, and now I think whether it's laying bricks, writing a book, whatever we choose, we should give ourselves to it. Commitment, that's the key. Choose one chair. Sounds a little bit like Joshua to me. Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. Putting our faith in Christ is a commitment we make. It's coming to the place where I can't live without him. It's coming to the place where I realize I'm lost, I'm undone. I'm destined to a devil's hell. My life in this world will never reach the potential for which God created me apart from Jesus Christ. 
and after the Holy Spirit works efficiently in our hearts and urges and urges and urges, we come to that place where we say, I want you. You done that? Do you believe this? There is an outcome, and I have just about a couple, two minutes. I'll make three minutes to make a couple comments. See, our story reveals three outcomes anytime the question of Jesus Christ is pressed. Do you know that's what's happening this morning, really? I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I am pressing the question of Jesus Christ. You have a decision to make. For some, faith is strengthened like Martha. Her faith was refined. Her faith was drawn out. She had faith, but not to the depth that Jesus wanted her to. He wanted her to embrace the fact that the resurrection was tied up in him as a person, and he also wanted her to have implicit trust in him. And you will see this later, and this all turned out to a very positive effect. If you look down at verse 23 in the chapter, kind of interesting, Jesus knows what his intentions are. I'm sorry, we need to be a little bit later in the chapter. Uh, verse 39, you look down a little bit later in the chapter, Jesus said, now the sisters are there. Martha is there. Mary is here at this point. And Jesus says something in verse 39 that just causes them a little bit of temporary concern. He says, take ye away the stone. <laughs> what would you think? They didn't embalm, not like we do. So Martha says to Jesus, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus just probed a little bit, just encouraged a little bit, based on what he'd already told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said to her in verse 40, didn't I say, said I not to thee that if thou wouldest believe? Just trust me. If you would believe, you would see the glory of God. What's the next verse say? It doesn't say Martha said okay, but obviously she did. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. She obviously didn't put up any more concern, raise any more questions. She said, I trust you. And to good reward, too, because when you get down to verses 30. 43 and 44 we read and when he had thus spoken Lazarus come forth he that was dead verse 44 came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was bound about with a napkin Jesus saith unto them loose him and let him go would you like to see something like that well I could tell you I don't need to but I'm not going to tell you I wouldn't want to So for some, when they hear Christ, Christ's claims and the gospel and all of these things, their faith is strengthened. For others, it becomes real for the very first time. Look at verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. That could happen for you here today. You know that? It could happen for the very first time that you really, honestly, truly understand your need Put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Or the third is that for others, still they reject it, which we read in verse 46. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them that what things Jesus had done, they didn't believe they were on the other side. Not a particularly good place to be. Do you believe? Do you believe this? Not just the facts of Christian religion, but the person upon whom those facts depend, Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, 
He is the promised Savior. That's what's all involved in the confession that Martha makes in verse 27. You know, in fact, if you look at that, one last comment on that verse 27, what does she say? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, that's the Messiah, the Son of God, which should come into the world. That's the promised Savior. Do you realize that she said everything Peter said, and Peter's the one we always talk about? Jesus said to them that day, Whom, whom do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? Oh, they said, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? He asked them. Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Same thing she said. Her confession is just as great. Her faith is just as explicit. And have you acted on this belief? I read about a minister that had called his congregation together for a special service because they had been lacking rain for so long. So when the pastor got up, the people had gathered and they were going to have this particular prayer service. He had kind of a somber look on his face and they weren't quite certain why he seemed to feel that way or look that way. This is what he had to say, brothers and sisters, you all know why we are here. Now what I want to know is where are your umbrellas? Belief that doesn't act, belief that doesn't end in the particular action that it indicates isn't really valid. If you believe yourself a sinner here today, you believe Jesus Christ is God's son, that he died on the cross for you and rose again, you believe that without him you will not have eternal life but will indeed perish, then you must culminate what you say by putting your faith and trust in him as your personal savior by calling upon him and asking him to forgive your sins and to give you eternal life and if you do I'll tell you this whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and whosoever is big enough to put your name in shall call is simple enough it's not a work it's just the natural outworking of what the Holy Spirit has wrought in your heart and shall be saved. That's God's promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the wonderful privilege of reminding ourselves of how great and wonderful it is to know Jesus Christ, to know the one who is the resurrection, to know the one who is the life, and to know that by believing on him we can have life through his name. We marvel, Lord, at your so rich grace, marvel at your mercy, marvel that you went to the cross of Calvary in order to provide this for us. Our only prayer, Father, is that each person coming under the sound of the gospel, especially we pray for our service today, if any is here who doesn't know Christ as Savior, Father, I pray you will draw them to yourself. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, and we won't tarry, but I wonder, may I pray for you? Is there someone here today that would say, Pastor, you know, I'm just not totally sure. I've been around church. Uh, I believe the facts of the Bible. Uh, 
None of this is strange to me. I've heard it before, but I just don't know that I've ever really come to an understanding of my lost estate, that I'm a sinner who needs to be saved. Don't know that I've ever received Christ as my personal Savior and know that I'm born again today and know that if I died today, I'd go to heaven. But I pray for you. I won't call your name out. But I'd like to pray for you. And I think it's healthy for you to come to, to grips with what God is doing in your heart. If that's the case, would you slip your hand up and let me pray for you? Anybody here like that? I'm concerned, preacher. I'm not sure I have this settled. Let's stand to our feet as we pray. Gracious God in heaven, we love you. We thank you. We pray that we'll live a life honoring to Jesus who did so much for us and cause those who know Christ as Savior to be strengthened Lord, each day we need that strength that comes from you. It goes right back to that very first song that we sang this morning, Lord, I need you. We think of that poor man, honest as he was, really said what all of us need to say, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Help us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Help us to look for those opportunities where we can share it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Page 442. Hope you can sing this truthfully, honestly, as a song of testimony. It says, I know whom I have believed, which is what Paul also told us. 442.